right, good morning. Welcome to you. Welcome to those who are joining us online today, which by looking around the auditorium is several. And uh, so I trust that as you're listening, we were praying earlier today, Pastor Jason and I just asking God to help us to be focused during this time of so many distractions, particularly those who are at home. I hope that you can engage in every element of worship and feel like at the end of our time here today that you've been in the presence of the Lord and able to really experience uh, worshiping with him and so, uh, or worshiping him. Just a few announcements to bring to your attention. Our annual meeting is coming. We've tried to consider different things that we could do to be helpful with this, uh, but we will be having an informational meeting next Sunday evening, live stream only. That'll be at 7 o'clock. And then the following Sunday, we'll be actually having an in-person business meeting. That will be at 6 o'clock. We'll have a packet of information for you to look over and consider. And so we'll have more details later. But pray that the Lord will allow this to go smoothly, that each person will feel engaged and a part of this process, which is important just in understanding and keeping touch with what's going on in our church. The Bible study for the ladies is beginning January the 26th. If you have signed up for that, make sure you read the details of what you need to do in contacting Ginger, how you can be a part of the Zoom follow-up with that, uh, which you want to choose the morning or the evening, several things there that need to be done. And so please contact Ginger if you have not done that already. The Randolph Street Kids continues to be a blessing to many. If you missed that, and I know sometimes it's easy to do on a Sunday morning, that'll be available again for you. Uh, on our Facebook page uh, beginning in the morning. If you would like to receive our church email and are not presently receiving that, uh, we have not gained or uh, gathered a lot of information from people over the last few months since COVID. So if you've been attending but not receiving our church email, our prayer guide and so on, we communicate several things through email. Uh, please uh, let us know. You can there's an, uh, an address in your bulletin that you can write and give us your email, and we'll get you included in that. All right. Let's quiet our minds here for a moment. Focus upon the Lord, asking God to do good things in our heart, asking the Lord to enable us to give him the worship that is due his holy name. stand as I pray. Our Father, as we come before you this day, I would ask, O oh Lord, that you would help us to be very mindful of your presence, that we are worshiping you, 
great creator of the universe, our Father, our God. Lord, we want to express just deep appreciation for your kindness and grace in our lives. Father, we recognize that it is by grace that we are saved. We thank you, Lord, for the gifts of faith and repentance that we can acknowledge. Lord, I, I pray that we would be a people that would seek to honor you, that, Lord, you would deepen our affections for you, that, Lord, our love for you would cause our hearts to be obedient to your word. Lord, that we would worship you from a pure heart, that we would worship you in spirit. Oh, God, I pray that we would be a people pleasing to you. Lord, we recognize our sinful condition, but we also recognize, Lord, your joy in caring for your people, your joy in mending hearts, your joy in forgiving. And so, Lord, help us to have a real and fruitful and living relationship with you. I pray, Lord, as we engage today that we would do so wholeheartedly. Lord, we would do so with our heart and our soul and our mind. Lord, we do ask that if there be any here today or listening online that do not know you, have never come to that personal relationship with you, God, that you would save them this day. That, Lord, as the gospel goes forth, your word goes forth in a variety of mediums, Lord, that you would use it to awaken people's hearts to truth. Father, we love you, and we give you honor and glory this day. Amen. Please follow me in our responsive reading as we work through the third psalm. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Oh, 
Let us hear from God's holy word. 
a reading from the Gospel of John. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, and you are the King of Israel. Jesus said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. A reading from Paul's letter to Timothy. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Please stand. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is holy now to be. Oh, 
thank you, Randy and worship team, for leading us this morning. Thank you for being here today on this Lord's Day. We missed you in here last Sunday morning. It was rather lonely for the few who were in here for our live feed only. Thank you so much for your patience, your willingness to be flexible as our elders try to navigate these waters that have never been navigated at Randolph Street before. Uh, but thank you so much for joining us last Sunday online, I trust. For those of you who are joining us this morning, uh, we miss you. We can't wait till your smiling faces are back in this room with us. Take your copy of God's Word and open with me this morning to Philippians chapter 2 for the reading of our sermon text. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be go back and reread last Sunday's text and read all the way through verse number 11. So we'll be beginning at verse number 1 through verse 11. Let us together now hear the reading of God's Word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray together. Oh, Father, this is your word. And we, as your people, come before you now and ask that you would work your word into our lives, weave it, if you will, into the very fabric of our being, so that we as Christians, right here in the midst of Randolph Street, brothers and sisters in Christ, might fulfill what you are calling us to in this text as a whole. Help us, O oh God ultimately, to be Christ-like, to pursue that which Christ values, to cherish that which Christ practiced, to see it formed and functioning in our own lives for the glory of you, our God. I pray for those in this room this morning, for those joining us online in the midst of this unusual season of life. Oh God, would you be gracious to your people here today? and do a work of mercy in our hearts. We might live for the glory of you, our God. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.
you, Greg, for ministering to us this morning with your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2. Pen, paper, however you best work through the Word of God in your own heart and mind. Our attention this morning will be on what is really a significant text in the New Testament, verses 5 through verse number 8, the humiliation of Christ. Last Sunday... We spend our time in the first four verses of this particular text, and I want your, your eyes to linger back to that in just a moment, because I want you to see Paul's heart for you and for me, for us as the church. This is, this is Paul and this deep passion that he has for God's people. Look at verse number two. And you, you can hear this. It kind of oozes out of his words. Complete my joy. I mean, for, for Paul, his mind about the church and his mind about this particular exhortation that he's going to set before them, tied to that was his joy. He yearned for this in the church, and then the, the, the exhortation is clear, it's simple. Same mind, same love, full accord of one mind. It is this radical call of Paul in the midst of a world that promotes division and strife and contention. It is this radical call of Paul to the church to pursue unity, to maintain unity. When you read through Paul's epistles, you don't have to be a great Bible student to see this reoccurring theme in his writings. I mean, it's fairly consistent. I took time this past week just to pass through Paul's epistles, and it's at times overwhelming because it is so consistent. Paul desired unity in these local churches. I mean, in many ways, it is the very reflection of Jesus' high priestly prayer. In John chapter 17, when he prayed that we would be one, he was pouring his heart out to his Father, desiring the unity of the church. This church that Paul writes to is not a dysfunctional church, the church of Philippi. It's one thing for Paul to call the Corinthians to unity, right? When you read through that particular letter, you see how distorted this particular church is. But he calls this church, the church at Philippi, to the same type of unity. This is something that Paul deeply desired for the church. We, we do see some underlying issues possibly in this particular local church. If you look over at chapter 4, first couple of verses, we find two ladies who are having some type of disagreement, and Paul exhorts them to agree in the Lord, but th this is an underlying theme, unity, that Paul deeply values for the church. In this particular text, it rises to a central issue in his heart and his mind. Paul understood and this is for us, Randolph Street. I've been pastoring here for 13 years. God has been kind to us through those 13 years. He has given us a fairly consistent, overwhelming sense of unity together as brothers and sisters. There have been moments, right, as every family has. There have been moments, but overall, God has been incredibly kind to us as a local church. 
Paul understood, but with that said, I don't want us to miss this text, okay? Paul understood that unity is tied distinctly to a disposition of our hearts, namely humility. So that's why he says in verse number three, if we're going to complete his joy, do nothing from robbery or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. Paul, Paul knew that if true hum- humility was going to be attained in the context of a church, a place that's full of sinners, which is what we are, right? Sinners with our own preferences, our own loves, our own desires. Paul knew that if true, genuine, God-glorifying humility would take root in the church, unity, it would be born out of a heart of humility, Listen to what he says in Ephesians. You hear similar ideas and themes. Paul says, I mean, if you, if you go back to verse 27 in Philippians 1, you're going to hear a lot of connection here. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I mean, that, that ties back to Philippians 1.27. He wants your manner of life to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Ephesians, he says it a little bit differently. I want you to walk in a manner that, that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And then he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So th- there it is again, this, this consistent, reoccurring theme in Paul. I want you to walk worthy of your calling. I want you to walk worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here's what that looks like in humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with one another in love because you have this this primary goal, and that is unity in the body of Christ. That which Jesus prayed for on his last night. Now, if you remember last Sunday morning, which you may not because you were at home, competing with all the attentions of home. I understand that. You fall asleep here, I see you. You fall asleep last week, no idea. Last Sunday morning, Paul began verse 1 with a theological statement. And it really carries the idea of since then, you have encouragement in Christ. He begins this theological statement by emphasizing to these flipping. He's going to ground their unity on this theological statement. They've had this common experience in their union with Christ. They have had this common experience in the love that they've received from God. They have this common experience of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They have this common affection that has been born and grown in their lives for one another. That's the ground that Paul stands all of this on. All these common realities. And then out of that is where Paul says, okay, here it is, complete my joy, be of one accord. Well, as Paul started this exhortation with theologies, he's going to end it with theology. The text before us today, we're going to be focusing on verses 5 through 8, is what many view as an early church hymn. Whether written by Paul or not originally, if it is an early church hymn, Paul captures it in this particular text. As it is this glorious summary that moves us from 
the humiliation of Christ to the exaltation of Christ. This Sunday, we're going to focus just on the one side, and next Sunday, we'll come back and capture the other side. But this text takes us, if you will, from eternity past and the glory that Jesus shared with his Father to eternity future and this, if we could call it this, this restored glory that Jesus will have over all things forever and ever. And this little hymn and just a few short verses capture for us some of the greatest Christology of the New Testament. It has often been used, and rightly so, this text, to understand the theology of Christ. And we're going we're to work through that this morning. This text has rightly been used to understand the person, the work of Christ. But what I don't want us to miss, and I said this last Sunday, what I don't want us to miss, though this text is packed with theology, the primary purpose of this text is to push into your hearts this example and model of Christ. If you look back at verse 3, if you write in your Bibles, this is what I did. Verse 3, but in humility, that's what Paul's calling you to. And then you let your eyes linger all the way down to verse number 8. He humbled himself. So Paul's going to call you to something in this text. We're going to come back and look at that one more time, just briefly. Paul's going to call you to something in this text, but then he's going to bring the example of Jesus right behind that, and he's going to ground us in this example. Here's your outline of taking notes this morning. We're going to look at our call in Christ. It'll be brief. I've already said most of that. We're going to look at our call in Christ in verse number five. Secondly, we're going to look at Christ's position, verse number six. Thirdly, we're going to look at Christ, what I'm calling active humiliation. And we're going to see, this is going to be the heart of the sermon. We're going to see how Paul works this out. And then we're going to come to one simple conclusion, because I don't want us to get lost in the jungle here of theology. Well, I do. I want us to get lost in it, but I want to get out of it at the end and come back and say to ourselves, what's, what's Paul driving us toward with this kind of truth? Okay, let's jump in. Verse number five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, or we could translate, which is also in Christ Jesus. So verse 5 takes us to a new point in Paul's argument. He, he's going to exhort us here to have the mindset of Christ. So he moves us from verse 1, what we have experienced together. That, that is our common ground, right? We're in Christ. We've experienced the love of God. The Spirit of God dwells in us. We have this common love for one. He's going to move us from that theology now to this theology in verse number 5. And he's going to call us here to this example that has been set forth by Christ. And in that, if you look back at verse number 5, he wants us to have this type of mind among ourselves. 
Okay, so he's, he's going to develop the theology in just a moment. Before he gets there, this is the mind I want you to have, Paul is writing. If you're going to have true, sustainable unity in the context of the church, if you're going to be of one accord, here's the mind you must have. Calvin writes about this text. Paul here, the apostle, invites us to imitate Christ. He exhorts everyone to have the same disposition that was in Christ. He afterwards, in this text, as we move through it, shows us a pattern of humility that has been presented to us in Christ. So this is what Paul is calling us to, Christians, brothers and sisters, right here at Randolph Street. Let's not think about others, other churches, other movements, other things that are out there. Let's think about our own hearts for a moment. This is what Christ is calling us to. It's what Paul is calling us to, to have this mind like Christ. And again, if we're going to sustain unity here at Randolph Street, we must have a sustained focus on Christ. We must be inundated with the gospel. This is, this is why our gathering is so important for this, this weekly means of grace where we gather in this space and we sing gospel truth and we hear the gospel read to us in the gospels and in the epistles and we hear the preaching of God's word. This, this time where we gather in this sacred space to rehearse all that God has done for us in Christ, there is comfort there and there is assurance there, but there is also this practical reality that our lives are to be like Christ in this world. So ultimately what verse 5 does then is to cause us to have our hearts, our minds, our souls consistently, constantly fixed upon Christ. If we're going to be good churchmen or good church women, we've got to be a people that have our hearts and our minds and our emotions and our wills fixed upon Christ and then asking God to form this in us. I hope that's what verse 5 does for us this morning. Let's look now at Christ's position in verse number 6. He writes, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, now, it's easy to pass over this little statement to get to kind of the, the heart of this passage. But before we understand the humbled life of Jesus, we must first understand his eternal position. I mean, it's kind of this idea, you have to know where he came from. In our Hope for Appalachia program, as we've tried to serve men who are battling addiction, I would often hear their background and their lives and I would grow in my appreciation of these men when I would hear where they came from. It's just kind of how it works at times. Well, what Paul sets forth at the very beginning of this text is where Jesus came from. Look back at the phrase. Although he existed in the form of God. Here Paul focuses on a truth that much of the New Testament puts effort into. The fact here that Jesus, this one he's going to speak of, 
possesses the very nature of God. That's, I think it's what he's going after. He existed in the form of God. The emphasis here, if you look down at your text, is that he is equal with God. That this second person of the Godhead possessed every divine attribute. He, he lacked nothing in divinity. He possessed the very nature and the very character and the very being of God. He was in the form of God. So this is one of the things I deeply appreciated when we preached through the Gospel of John. From the beginning of John to the end of John, there is this thread of the deity of Christ that is woven throughout the text, whether it be through narrative or whether it be through explicit statements. It begins with that idea. You're familiar with the beginning of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, words with God, and the Word was God. This clear, on-the-front-shelf type statement about the deity of God, or of Christ. The, the other end of the Gospel of John is Thomas's glorious statement when he realizes this is, this is Jesus, the one who's crucified and he's risen from the dead and his exclamation of, of Christ is the other bookend of the Gospel of John when he says, my Lord and my God. And then you go back and trace through the Gospel of John and this, this theme or this idea is embedded throughout all of John's writings through the words of Jesus and through the actions of Jesus. He existed in the form of God. He shares the very nature of God. Jesus would make clear statements. I and the Father are one. Or, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of his glory, speaking of God the Father, and the exact representation of his nature. This is, this is what Paul means right here. He's, he existed in the form of God. He, he bears the very marks of God. The Son reflects perfectly the very nature of God. He shares the nature and the essence and the being with God. This is God in the flesh. That's why Paul would write in Colossians 2, In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, whatever is true about God the Father in regard to his nature is true about God the Son. This is who he is. The early church wrestled with this. If you're a reader of church history, you know that many of the early battles, theological battles in the church dealt with this very issue, the, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ. I mean, it, it, was, it was something that not only they wrestled with as they read the scriptures, but they rose up and they defended this truth. One of the ways they had defended it was what was historically called the Athanasian Creed. This affirmation that, that Jesus, this one who walked among us, existed in the very form of God. Listen to what the Athanasian Creed, I won't read all of it, but listen to this part. The early church affirmed this. Whatever quality the Father has, the Son has. 
That's born out of texts like Philippians 2. He existed in the form of God. So the church backed up and said, okay, whatever quality the Father has, then that quality the Son has, and so does the Holy Spirit. And then it takes off on this glorious trail. Just listen to this. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. The Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, but there is one almighty being. Thus, the Athanasian Creed affirms, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. I mean, this is, this is what the church responded with when they read little phrases like this that existed in the form of God. The Athanasian Creed concludes with this. Now, this is the true faith. All right, when you make that kind of statement, you better listen to what's coming. This is the true faith. We believe and we confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. What a glorious mystery brought together in Christ. And the early church rose up and they confessed this. This is God. And this is how Paul begins the statement. He was in the form of God. You have to know, before we, before we get into the rest of this text, you have to understand where Jesus comes from. The one who entered into time and space and history is none other than the eternal God. I know that's a little statement. He was in the form of God. But that carries so much eternal truth. Now, it's like Paul here takes this hymn to set us up, if it's a hymn. He's going to set us up. So none of you have that beginning place. I don't think I have to argue that point, right? None of you have that starting point in your lives. When we, when we record your biography, that's not beginning with anything of your deity or your perfection or your holiness. So you don't begin where Christ begins in this, in this line of argument and reasoning. But you've got to start there with him so that we understand the full import of what's coming in this text. Now look down at your Bibles, if you would. This is Christ's active humiliation. Number one, there's three statements here I'm going to pick up on, three massive phrases I'm going to pick up on as we walk through these next couple of verses. Number one, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's unusual language. What is Paul going after here? He did not regard or count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Well, here's what I think he's saying. The glorious status that Jesus shared with the Father from all eternity. So you gotta, you gotta get your mind back there first. The glorious status which Jesus shared with the Father from all eternity. When he entered into this world, he did not hold on to it. When he entered into our condition, as theologians would say, he did not hold tight to his divine privileges. He refused, if you will, when he entered into the human condition to cling to his rights as God. He freely gave it up. He willingly gave up his glorious position. He voluntarily laid aside his heavenly glory. That's why I'm calling this his active humiliation. He voluntarily laid it aside. And listen, not for one second should we think this was easy for Jesus, like he was some robot. Remember in John chapter 17 when Jesus is at, this is probably recorded in the upper room or soon thereafter, this, this high priestly prayer, we call it. I already referred to it one time when Jesus was praying for our unity. But in the very beginning of that, Jesus prays this, Father, you know this text, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is, this is what this text is speaking of. Jesus has laid that aside actively. This pre existent incarnate glory that Jesus shared with the Father and with the Spirit. He voluntarily lays that aside and you hear him in the garden now yearning or in the upper room. He's yearning, Father, restore that glory to me that I had with you before we ever created this world. He freely gave it up. He laid it aside. A little phrase I shared a moment ago that theologians will often use, he gave up the independent use of his divine prerogatives. He submitted. He entered in. Look at the second phrase, if you will, in verse number seven. He made himself nothing or he emptied himself the church has wrestled with this word through the centuries the king james would translate this he made himself of no reputation the esv and or the nas he emptied himself NIV, he made himself nothing. Again, this is, this is an active humiliation of Christ. So, so what does this mean that Christ emptied himself? Or he made himself nothing? Well, let us be careful here. We gotta be, we gotta be good scholars in this. We gotta understand first what it does not mean. It does not mean and cannot mean that Christ at any point divested himself of deity. At no point did he become not God. 
He could not lay aside his attributes or his nature. Deity was never abandoned, and that's not what this author is teaching us in this text. Deity cannot be abandoned. Because it is who God is. So what does this mean? Well, kind of piggyback, piggyback on the previous phrase, Christ in his incarnation surrendered that glorious position He gave up, if you will, this is the phrase I was going after a moment ago, the independent use of his divine attributes. He surrendered that, not his Godhead, but his glory. Calvin again. Christ could not divest himself of the Godhead but he kept it concealed for a time that it may not be seen under weakness of flesh. There, there were moments when it was seen, right? I mean, even in the reading this morning, who was, I think it was Kyle over here was reading that text or somebody was reading that text this morning in John 1, that, that moment with Nathaniel. There are moments in the life and ministry of Christ and certainly at the Mount of Transfiguration where we get a glimpse of that glory just as if for just a second the, the curtain is pulled back and we, we peer in and we see the glory of Christ. But Calvin would say he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening it, by concealing it. This is what he did. He, he emptied himself of this. Now, Paul's going to help us understand this particular phrase a little bit better with two phrases below it. Look back at your Bibles, if you would. He made himself nothing, and then here's the two phrases afterward, after it that help us understand he made himself nothing. Took the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men. This is what it means. He made himself nothing. He took the position of a servant. Now again, if you keep in mind as you read this text, his starting point, his eternal starting point, this is shocking. Christ could have entered into history with every divine privilege every positional advantage. Christ could have entered into history as a king. He could have been surrounded in, in that moment of the incarnation by, by the cherubim and seraphim, myriads upon myriads to rip language of Revelation chapter 5, of angelic hosts could have surrounded Jesus upon his entry into history. And that would have been right. But they did not. Jesus entered into human history. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing by stepping into our condition, not as a king, but as a servant. This idea brings forth the thoughts that he entered in with no privileges, no advantages, no rights, this Lord of glory stepped in, submissive. I don't know how heaven works. I don't know how you get glimpses. We, we, we talked about that at Revelation recently. 
maybe Isaiah 6. But, but I, in my mind, my very limited creative mind, I can only imagine the angelic host in the moment when redemptive history began to unfold and the Lord of glory stepped in as a servant. I don't know if angels can be shocked, but they must have been in awe of what was unfolding before their eyes. Again, Christ did not give up deity. He surrendered willingly his heavenly glory. And he stepped into history as a servant. Probably the best inter-Pauline commentary on this particular idea is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 9, when he writes, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. But I think it's Paul's commentary on this idea, right, that the, that the Lord of glory surrendered that glory. He surrendered that privilege. He surrendered that amazing status that he shared with the Father for all of time to enter into our condition as a servant. And Paul looks at that and says, hey, the one who was eternally rich now has become poor for you. What does it mean he emptied himself? He surrendered those rights and took the form of a servant. If you look down at the next phrase, he was born in the likeness of men. Verse number seven. So he stepped into this status of a servant, but he did so in human form. You'll see that in verse number eight. In other words, Jesus took up on himself this, this eternal God. He took up on himself what the Athanasian Creed affirmed, namely this human body and soul and mind. He was truly human. And notice the phrase here in the likeness of men. I think what the author is saying here is, by appearance, as you looked up on Jesus, what did you see? You just saw a man. That's all you saw. When you looked up on Christ, he was a mere man. Nothing special, nothing significant physically about him. This is a part of him emptying himself becoming nothing. He entered into our human condition. He did so without sin. We can't, we can't move past that truth. He was without sin, but Jesus experienced the full realities of living in a fallen world. And brothers and sisters, he voluntarily gave himself to this. He made himself nothing. God the Son the eternal God entered into our state and he learned. He learned how to crawl and stand and walk and speak and read and sing and write. 
He made himself nothing. He stepped into our world and he experienced physical limitations as his body would tire with exhaustion. He would thirst and hunger. He would experience the emotions of the human heart, such as distress and sorrows. He would experience what loneliness is. He would know what it is to be abandoned. He would understand pain and loss. He would experience the fullness of the human condition. He made himself nothing. Isaiah 53, right at the very beginning of that text, the the author records for us about this coming servant. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. (laughs) There was nothing about him that catches our eyes. He made himself nothing. The author goes on, there was no beauty that we should desire him. You didn't look upon Jesus physically speaking, and you weren't drawn to him because of any stature. He made himself nothing. The author of Isaiah says he was despised and he was rejected by men. He was not adored. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. And then he makes this declaration. We looked up on him and we esteemed him not. Jesus made himself nothing. Again, when you catch the starting, eternal starting point, this is overwhelming to our hearts. This is grace. Look at the next verse. He was found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's one thing for us to look at Jesus' life and see this play itself out, this idea that he made himself nothing, this self-emptying of Jesus. Still God, fully divine, cannot surrender his character and his essence. He is the eternal God. But in this life, in humanity, he submitted himself to the will of the Father. He made himself nothing. He experienced the reality of living in this world. It's one thing for us to see his humiliation in his life. But now Paul takes it to a whole nother status. He wants you to see his humiliation in his death. I mean, in many ways, this is what we can look at and say is the apex of the humiliation of Christ. Jesus did not simply surrender his divine privileges when he entered into this world. Now Jesus, in this text, he surrenders life. He gives himself in this particular idea. He gives himself to suffering and to shame. He gives himself to perceived guilt. He gives himself over to sinners. Jesus in this moment experienced what no man should ever endure, much less the Son of God. In this moment, the one who was born as a peasant would now die the death of a criminal. Jesus made himself nothing. That's why the writer of Isaiah 53 comes along behind that and he says, he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows. We looked up on him and said, he's stricken and smitten of God. He is afflicted. 
He's pierced with our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. That's how we look at him. That's how we observe him. We cannot talk about humiliation of Christ without coming to verse number eight and understanding that the apex of the humiliation of Christ was when he surrendered himself to sinners and laid down his life and died the death of a common criminal. That's our Savior. And it's overwhelming. Now, with that in mind, I come to a conclusion I do not want us to miss. Here it is. Randolph Street, let this mind be in you. You're not what Jesus was, is. Gotta be careful with my language here. You're not what Jesus is, And you did not, nor will you ever, humble yourself in the manner of which Jesus did. But Paul takes all of that theology and he brings it to bear right in our souls. How do we live in a world that's full of strife and division and arrogance and hatred? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. How do we live in a world when those we disagree with are all around us? Let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. How do we live as husbands and wives when we're married to sinners? Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Calvin, since then, the Son of God descended from so great a height. How unreasonable that we who are nothing should be lifted up with pride. This hymn is such a rebuke to our arrogant, prideful hearts. The simple conclusion for us when we read this kind of truth in this particular text, Randolph Street, there should be a yearning desire in our souls to let this mind be in me. Behold Christ. Set your heart up on him. Look and see how glorious he is and how exalted he was before creation. Let your mind linger back there. Let your your meditations center there. Let your creative mind wonder, what was that like? And as you begin to grasp that, then you begin to see how deep his descent was. And it was an active humiliation of Christ. And as you, as you observe all that, be blown away by his grace. Be blown away by his grace. And then let rise up in your heart, let this mind be in me. And why do we go so hard after this? Why do we aim for this goal of unity in the body of Christ? Why? Because God is glorified. That's why. Because God is glorified when his people have his full accord with one another, centered up on the gospel, moved by Christ, existing for the purpose of the glory of God. That's why we should be yearning in our hearts. Let this mind be in me. That was in Christ. 
It's not easy. But may God in his mercy grant that to us. And may he do so for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this truth in this text, few verses, is so mysterious, glorious. It's hard to wrap our small, finite minds around this kind of truth. God, let, let it settle in our hearts here as members of this church. I think of the text that Andrew read a moment ago from, I believe, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, and we don't want to be quarrelsome or divisive. Oh, God, let that not be the disposition of our hearts, but let there be what was in Christ in us. And God, that will only happen through the work of your Spirit in us. And let us know you are glorified in your people when we imitate Christ that which you call us to in this passage. Oh, may there be cultivated in us by your Holy Spirit this true, genuine humility. So, some, so rooted in us, we consider others before us. I think of Jesus. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Oh God, work that heart in us that was in Christ. Lord, you have been so kind to this church. Um, I don't want to miss the opportunity just to thank you for your grace and mercy you have worked and brought forth in this local church the unity that you have preserved around Christ and your word. Father, I pray that you would continue that and strengthen that as, and we and me, may we pursue that which is essential to this continued effort at being of one accord together. Lord, we are deeply, deeply grateful Lord Jesus, that you surrendered that glory you had with the Father, stepped into this moment, to this condition. Because we know that leads to our eternal salvation. Thank you for your willingness to submit to the Father, stepping in for us and our salvation. Be glorified now in your people as this truth take root, takes root in our souls and our hearts. We ask that in the name of Christ. Amen. Please stand, if you would, with me. And together, let's lift up our voices in prayer to the Lord. Our Father, which art...
this morning to our time together. I think the Constantinos are here. Am I correct with that? Very good. Alex and Grace are here today with their little baby Maggie. Maggie 
has had to wait a little bit to be introduced because of COVID, but thank you for coming today. It's good to see you. We look forward to seeing her. I don't know if she has a mask on or what, but uh, we'll, we'll check her out. We find the implications of Christ's humiliation in so many places, as Jason says, as you read through the epistles. It's overwhelming. Here is another instance of that, the application of that truth. And may the Lord make you increase and inbound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in the holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen and glory to God.